In May of this year, two tornadoes struck in Oklahoma, one on the 20th of May and one on the 30th of May. In that second storm, nine Guatemalans were killed. Five of them were children. One of them was only 16 days old. One family hid under uh, in a storm drain near their home, and they were swept away by the storm. Many of the immigrants didn't know how to prepare for the storm because they didn't know the storm was coming because they couldn't understand the announcements, the warnings were, were being made because they were in English. After the storm, it was suggested that in Oklahoma, one of the most disaster-prone states in our country, that disaster warnings, disaster warnings should be announced in both English and Spanish because of the large number of Latin Americans in that state. I was speaking to a colleague this week on Wednesday who pastors a PCA church in Oklahoma. And he was talking about the response to that suggestion. What do you think of that suggestion? Well, he told me that Oklahoma is the sixth most churched state in America. So there ought to be plenty of Christians there. But he proceeded to tell me about the response in the local paper to that suggestion. He said that people were surprisingly, overwhelmingly opposed to it. And that some of the responses in the newspaper he uh, qualified as vile, particularly this one. If they can't speak English, they don't deserve to live. What do you think of that sentiment? What do you think God thinks of that sentiment? If an immigrant, an international, can't speak English in our country, they don't deserve to live. That, of course, would include the 16-year-old that died. Others were devastated by the storm as well. But they were afraid to ask for help, particularly medical help that they needed. Because if they asked for help, then it would be discovered that they were in their country illegally and they would be sent back to the, the poverty and hopelessness that they had escaped. How would God have us treat those who are living in our land among us? We better know the answer to that question. Because you and I are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. First and foremost, as believers in Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we are accountable to our king. And so we don't first and foremost ask, what would Republicans do? We don't first and foremost ask, well, what would the Democrats do? We don't first and foremost ask, well, what legislation should we put in place? No, first and foremost we ask, what must we as believers in Christ do? What must we as a church of Christ, do in this world. God is a God of justice and mercy. And if you and I will bless this land in which he has placed us, and that's what we hope to do, then we must be people who seek justice and extend mercy. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Moses speaking here, At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers, so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your burdens? 
your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself. Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. And you answered, what you propose to do is good. And so I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless, as you promised, the reading and hearing of your word. Lord, it is truth. Your word is truth. You are truth. And as you speak your truth to us today through your word, Father, we pray that your spirit would apply that truth to our hearts. Give us understanding. Show us where we need to change. Bring transformation to our lives, to our hearts, to our church, to our ministry. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to just very briefly review what we looked at last week to to set the context for what we're going to discuss this morning. Moses has broken down this covenant community of uh, more than a million people into groups. Groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And we saw last week that this was God's way of taking care of his people because that's the thing that God loves to do. He loves to take care of his people. And in this way, no one was able to fall through the cracks, no one to go unnoticed, not when they were in a group of ten. And so God cared for his people in this way. Moses put in charge of each group men who were respected and wise and well thought of to be in charge of them to give them leadership. If you look in verse 16, you see the charge that Moses gave to these leaders. He told them to hear disputes. And so these leaders of these groups are to act as judges. That is what their role is to be. And so first we need to look this morning as we come to this passage, what is the scope? What is the scope of the people who are to receive justice? We need to know the answer to that question. So we can give justice where we are required to give it, and so we're, we're off the hook, where we're not to, required to extend justice. So let's look at verse 16. We see there the beginning of the scope. Moses tells the judges that they are to judge between brother Israelites. So everyone who is part of this covenant community, covenant family of God, they are to receive justice. Secondly, They are to judge, according to verse 16, between Israelites and an alien. Now, an alien would be anyone who was not an Israelite. An alien would be someone from another country, another nation, who was living among the people of Israel. People who could have been easily oppressed because they were, quote-unquote, outsiders. Because they were not people who possessed land of their own. Like a Guatemalan living in Oklahoma. So let's look a little more in depth at what God's view of an alien or a stranger or a foreigner is. And these passages I'm going to read to you are in Deuteronomy, and you are welcome to flip 
through and read them along with me. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. We read there, you are to love those who are aliens. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Now flip over to Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 28. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Now look in verse chapter 16. Chapter 16, God is in give, giving instructions for the festivals and for the feasts that they are to celebrate together as a community. And in chapter 16, verse 11, God says, Rejoice before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, you your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, the Levites in your towns, and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows living among you. They're to be included in these celebrations and these festivals of the Lord. Turn over to chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 14. We read there, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Down to verse 17. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice. Verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 20. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. There are others, but this is the last one. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And this is verse 19. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people say, Amen! Exclamation point. This is something they were to say, uh, a call and response. And so let's just practice. Let's hear what it would have sounded like among the ancient Israel. I'm going to state the truth, God's truth, and you're going to say, as those people were to say, Amen. Are you ready? Here it is. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. One more time. Let's get a better exclamation point. God says, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. All right. See, it's clear. It's clear that justice and mercy is not just for the Israelites. It's for everyone, regardless of their nationality, who are living among them. Now, if you'll go back to our passage, which is in chapter 1, verse 17, we see more of the scope of the justice that God requires. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. 
And so we've got this breadth of everyone, and now we've got this depth. Those who are important in the world's eyes, those who are at the top of the heap, they deserve justice. But look who else deserves justice. Those who are small, those who are unimportant in the eyes of the community, they too are to receive justice. The great and the small receive justice and mercy. And so God forbids here the very thing that's so easy for us to do. It's so easy for us to be about me and mine, isn't it? To be very ethnocentric or culture-centric. You know, birds of a feather, you know, we, we flock together. But God doesn't allow for that. God doesn't allow us to draw rings around ourselves that excludes others. Rings around our family. Doesn't allow us to draw a ring around our clan. A ring around our race. A ring around our denomination. Oh, a ring around our social class. A ring around our educational peers. You, you get the point. Rings that indulge those within and exclude those without, or worse, oppress or ignore those without, they're not permitted by God. From God's word, it's clear. The justice isn't just for one kind or one group of people. It is for everyone. Alien, brother, small, great. And in extending that justice to everyone, it's God's will that we do not show partiality. He says so here. Literally, the Greek, the, the, the Hebrew for that phrase is do not know the face in judgment. You know, someone sitting before you, it's like blind justice. Don't even recognize them. Don't, don't recognize their face. Don't base your judgments on, on who they are or your relationship with them. Judge fairly. That's what the Lord requires. Do not show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, 17. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause, or better translated, he executes justice. He executes judges, justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And so according to God's standard, the scope of those who are to receive justice and mercy, it's everyone. Everyone who comes into contact with this covenant community is to receive justice from them, even non-Hebrew speakers living in their midst. See, this reflects the heart of God. And it's predictive of the scope of the work that Jesus will do. We love the verse, John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world There's the heart of God, a heart of love for who? The world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that all kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation 
He desires that they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No kind of person, socially, ethnically, educationally, economically, is to be excluded from the offer of the gospel. This truth finally dawned on Peter. Peter at that time, who was a very, very good Christian, awesome man. When against his repeated objections, God finally showed him that the gospel was for all people. And so Peter finally went to the home of a Gentile. Oh, you know, a shocking thing then. And when he got to Cornelius's house, Peter said this, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what's right. And then in Galatians 6.10, Paul writes this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So you and I have a special relationship with one another. We are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we uh, receive and accept special care from one another, but not to the exclusion of others. We do good to all, all sorts, every kind of person. That's God's will for us, that his people extend justice and mercy. It's very important to God. And if we aren't convinced that this is very, very, very important to God, then we're not going to bother to do it. We won't be involved in it. We'll turn a blind eye to it. And so we need to be convinced of its importance. And I want us to be really convinced of its importance. So we're going to take a little side trip. Is that okay with you? We're going to take a little side trip. We're going to leave Deuteronomy for just a minute. We're going to go to Leviticus 25. And we're going to look in Leviticus 25 at this very unique thing that God designed to ensure that justice and mercy would be part of his covenant community. The people that were called by his name the people that were to be a witness, his witness, to the world. And this very special thing that God designed, he told these people about before they were uh, to enter the promised land. They all wanted to go. They all wanted to receive what God had promised to them, their little piece of land in this world. But before God gave it to them, he basically says, before I give you this land to, to be yours, I want you to know what you're supposed to do with it when you get it. And so we come to Leviticus chapter 25, and we read there about the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. I want to talk about these two things for just a minute. The sabbatical year was to occur every seven years. And in the sabbatical year, two, two important things. The Israelites were not supposed to plant their fields, and they were not supposed to harvest. They were to, to, to allow the land to rest, and they were to get a year-long rest themselves. What's the downside of that? You know, What a blessing, a year-long vacation. Secondly, in the seventh year, the sabbatical year, all debts were to be wiped out. I'm going to read to you, this is actually in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It says, at the end of every seven years, and this is God speaking, you must cancel debts. And this is how it's to be done. Every creditor, every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelites. Can you imagine? Yay, God. Because it says the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. 
he goes on to say, there should be no poor among you. If there is a poor man among you or brothers, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whatever he needs. And be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Ah, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near. So that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. In other words, <laughs> you know, I know you have need, but I got to cancel that debt in a few months. You can't have it. No. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and toward the needy in your land. Right? That's the sabbatical year. Rest for the land, rest for the people, debts canceled. After seven sabbatical years were observed, totaling 49 years, the 50th year was to be the year of Jubilee. Are y'all still with me? Okay, sabbatical year, now we're going to talk about the year of Jubilee. Marked by three distinctives. Once it was announced by the blasting of a trumpet all over the land. The trumpet sounded, this is the year of Jubilee. During this 50th year, the land again was not to be planted or harvested. So they had taken off year 49, no planting, no harvesting. They had taken off year 50 now, no planting, no harvesting. What in the world were they going to do? What were they going to eat? God said, don't worry. I will send you such blessing in the sixth year, before the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, that you will have enough food for three years. God wanted rest for his people. God wanted rest for his land. And so God would provide for them to to allow for both of those. Secondly, in the year of Jubilee, all land was to return to its original owner. All land was to return to its original owner. In other words, the land that these people, to whom Moses is speaking at this time, the land that they are just about to receive when they enter the promised land, it is to belong to their family for the rest of their... uh, forever, forever. And if conditions forced a family to sell their land, it would come back to them in 50 years at the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was supposed to be so important to the Israelites and so central to their life, this 50-year cycle, that when you went to sell land, the price was based on when the year of Jubilee was coming. And so you paid a price depending on how many harvests there were remaining until the year of Jubilee, when that land that you had bought would go back to its original owner. And God says this, the land must not be sold permanently, Because the land is mine. That's what God says. The land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Thirdly, in the year of Jubilee, all who were slaves were to be set free. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He's to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released, and he'll go back to his own clan and the property of his fathers. Why? Because God says, the Israelites are my servants. The land is mine. The people are mine. 
whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. And so look, look at the community that God himself has designed. The sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, are reflections of the heart of God. What God wants to provide rest for his people to provide freedom and justice, to care for the land. Can you imagine a world like this? I can't. Can you imagine a world that worked this way? Everybody would have enough and nobody would have too much. This is God's way. Why should we wonder then that this year was announced with the the blast of a trumpet? This is a year of good news. And if God's people had done things God's way, It would have prevented the accumulation uh, of land on the part of a few to the detriment of the entire community. It would have made it impossible for anyone to have been born in absolute poverty since everyone had their hereditary land. It would have precluded those inequalities that were produced by the extreme of, of either extreme wealth or extreme poverty in the land. It would utterly do away with slavery. And here's the best part. It would provide a fresh opportunity to those who had been reduced possibly by adverse circumstances. It would give them a chance to get back on their feet and start all over again. This is not an equalization of all things. Hard work was still rewarded. Cattle wasn't included in this. You didn't have to divide your cattle. Your money wasn't included in this. No, that was yours to keep. But debts were forgiven And the land was redistributed, the right thing according to God for us to do. When we look at the Old Testament and when we look at the covenant community, we've got to be careful, very careful about how we apply what we read. And we've got to remember that at this time, Israel was what we call a theocracy. They had no king, they had no ruler except God. He was God over his people. And God gave them these civil laws, these judicial political laws to govern them. And our, our confession, the Westminster Confession, explains it this way. It says, to, to these people, God, to, to a, as a body politic, God gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now further than the general equity thereof may require. The main idea is there is general equity. It means that we go to these passages and we look for principles that guide our life. We go to these passages and we look to see how does does this passage, how does this law reflect the heart of God? We don't put into practice everything we read. We we just look for for God's heart prints, God's heartbeat uh, in the passage. And so we see in these verses, easy. God wants justice for all kinds of people and not just for some. We see that God would have us take care of the poor. We see that the dichotomies of extreme wealth and extreme poverty should not exist among God's people. We see that all that we have is a result of what God has provided for us. We see that we must hold those things that God has given us loosely and steward them for Him and for His people. We look back and we see a physical picture of what God is up to. And we hear in Isaiah chapter 61, the echoes of the year of Jubilee. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release 
from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus read these very words in the synagogue when he was here on earth. And when he finished and when he rolled up the scroll, he said, Today, these words have been fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is proclaiming he is our jubilee. It's the voice of Jesus that trumpets our release, that we are free because from the cross, he said, it is finished. The price of sin has been paid in full. You may go free. Jesus is our jubilee. Do you believe that? He'll restore all things. Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised he would long ago through the prophets. See, this restoration of the land, it points to what Christ will do. Matthew 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. One more passage from Romans 8. It says that creation itself Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, this grand jubilee is the event toward which history is moving. Christ will return. Everything perverted by sin will be made new. Slavery to sin abolished forever. True liberty and freedom for God's children. And all of the creation itself will be restored. You see, that's why giving justice, that's why extending mercy is so important. Because it shows that you and I are living with a jubilee attitude. Because it pictures the gospel. The freedom we have in Christ. You know, sin's debt that we owe. God said canceled. We're set free. We're resting in Jesus and his provision for us. It pictures the hope that we have, the hope that ought to keep us going, who we will be and what we will have when God makes all things new. And so you and I, we are visually and we are tangibly reminded of all of this when we actively involve ourselves as a church, in seeking justice and extending mercy. We're going to talk about this more next week. Too much to say, and I've said a lot. More more to say next week. But for now, just say this. I know that this can be one of those topics that leave people feeling frustrated. Maybe leave you feeling frustrated. Because it's not that you don't want to extend justice. It's not that you don't want to, to extend mercy. It's just that you don't really know what to do. Practically speaking. And so you sit there and you ask, what am I supposed to do? And and there are some things, and we'll talk about that uh, next week. But let me just say, if you're hearing that this is something that you have to do 
all alone, then you are hearing wrongly. And you are hearing, and here's my soapbox, you're hearing how the American church has conditioned you to hear. That your faith and that church is all about you and what you want and what you need and what you like and what you must have. And God forgive us here at Redeemer if we have ever promoted that attitude. Because that attitude flies in the face of Scripture particularly. In everything that we have looked at this morning. Because God is talking about here, there, and here. What we are to to do together as a community. It isn't as if back in ancient Israel, the the, the Joneses were the only ones giving the, the land back and canceling debts while every other tent on the block was going about their business. No, this is something they were all supposed to do together as a community to encourage one another and to support one another in accomplishing it. And so we're talking about this morning things that we do together as a church. It isn't for one lone individual to go off and and do this by themselves. It's for you to go out and you find a place where justice needs to be brought, where mercy needs to be extended, and you come and tell us, as Chris said earlier this morning, and together we will work on that as a family. Now, should it turn out that there's no interest here? Should it turn out that nobody wants to be involved in seeking justice or extending mercy, then we have issues much deeper than this that we need to address. But this is one thing, very practical thing, that we can do right now. We have... 12 deacons here at Redeemer. Unfortunately, some of them are out of town today for various reasons. But these deacons uh, are men that you have elected. And one of the most important things that deacons do, it's not just to take up your money and, and count the money and paint the building. One of the most important things they do are to lead us as a church in seeking justice and extending mercy. And these men have some level of passion to do that very thing. And you saw that passion in them. And that's why we elected them to serve as deacons. So this is how we're going to close. The few deacons that are here this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you'll stand, the deacons that are here. And I know, I, I know it's probably not most of you. Stand up. There are 12 in all. So, you know, there's some, some that are gone. Okay. Look in your bulletin about the middle. The, the other deacons are listed there. But here's the practical thing that we are going to do. We are going to pray for these men. That as they meet together, the Lord will guide them and direct them and show them how he wants them to lead us in doing justice and extending mercy. And we're going to pray for them uh, th- that they will be faithful leaders uh, of us, God's people, so that we may. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, seek justice and extend mercy. So bow your heads. Deacon, you stay standing because we're going to pray for ourselves and we're going to pray for you. And that's how we're going to close our time together in God's word. So bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear to us. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word according to our true identity, which is believers in Christ, that we wouldn't hear it from a political perspective, that we wouldn't even hear it as an American, but that we would hear your truth as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as your subjects. 
And Lord, we would be about the things that you call us to do. And so we know here in Charleston, Lord, there are injustices all around us. We know that here in Charleston there is mercy that needs to be extended to many people. And Lord, sometimes we just don't know how to do that. Partly because you've blessed us in so many ways that we as individuals don't often, we're not the ones to experience the injustice. We're not the ones that experience the lack. And so, Lord, I pray that you would inspire these men's hearts that are standing before us this morning. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would lead them and guide them and direct them. Lord, in miraculous ways, I pray that you would bring to their attention things that we can do to promote justice here in Charleston and to extend mercy. And Father, I pray that they would be bold enough to lead us, your people, and that where they lead, as they follow you, that we will follow them, Lord, and that we would make a difference here in this community for Jesus' sake by extending justice and and, and mercy throughout this city and by extension, Lord, through the world. So bless us now uh, for, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.